You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. I think one of the greatest compliments I've had was from the, uh, the mining sales guy at the Royal Bank. He said, Kevin, I've got companies that are afraid to come see you. And I said, great. Let's Even though you have way. money, to, you could write a check. Yeah, but <laughs> they're, they're, they're afraid to come see me because I, you know, I'll politely dissemble their arguments um, if they're not making sense to me. Welcome back to Mining Stock Education, and I'm very happy to bring to you today's episode. And I want to thank uh, upfront Dave Lotan, our recent guest. He's a strategic resource investor who introduced me to today's guest, Kevin McLean. He's currently the chief investment officer for Star Royalties but he has a very storied and successful history managing resource-focused funds in Canada. I'm gonna read off a couple things here. Kevin, welcome to the program. You have over 30 years experience specializing in precious metals and mining investments. You are the senior portfolio manager heading the resource investment team at Century Investments until 2017 with peak assets under management of approximately $2 billion. You received 13 Lipper Awards over multiple time periods for best risk-adjusted returns in the gold mining sector, and you were the recipient of seven Brendan Wood International Top Gun Awards for recognition of being a leading mine in the gold mining sector. So it's an honor to have you on the show today so you can share your insights with me and my audience. Uh, Thank you for joining me. Yeah, Bill, thank you for having me on. Looking forward to it. Well, when I tell people I focus on mining stocks and run a podcast around it, people in my circles of friends, if they don't know me, they look at me and say, well, how in the world did you get into mining stocks? I have three college degrees, none of which have anything to do with investing or mining stocks. And as I was going over your bio, it says you are a professional engineer holding a bachelor's of applied science in nuclear engineering from the University of Toronto. So let's start with your path from that (laughs) training in college to managing and running a successful resource-focused fund. Okay, well, I would like to say there was a plan, but there wasn't. Uh, Life is pretty random. So I graduated with a nuclear engineering degree and I started working with Ontario Hydro here in Toronto in their nuclear generation division. Uh, Unfortunately, in my early 20s, my father passed away unexpectedly. And he left my mom $5,000 in the bank and a $25,000 insurance policy. So my mom hadn't worked for 30 years. So I said, look, mom, I'll I'll look after you if need be, but let me invest the $25,000 for you and see what I can do. So I put half of that into a mortgage at 13%, which was the going rate back in 1980 or so. And I put the rest into a stock deal that was a merger acquisition opportunity with with a tax structure that basically allowed you to get a very low, almost zero risk tax advantage return on this uh, transaction. So she made some money on it. I made some money on it. And I thought, hey, this is kind of interesting. I just made some money essentially risk-free. You know, it was a few thousand bucks, but at the time, a few thousand bucks was serious money. So I started uh, spending my lunch hours uh, talking to brokers and learning about the business. So make a long story short, I ended up with a broker who I thought was pretty clever. And he offered me a, a partnership uh, to work with him. And I turned him down initially. I said, no, look, I've, I've worked too hard for this uh, nuclear engineering position. I'm going to stick with this. But he kept harassing me. And after a while, I, I gave in and I said, OK, look, what, what can I do with you? And he said, come on in. I'll train you. I'll give you half my book of business out of the gate. So I said, what does that work out to? And 
it was about twice what I was making as an engineer. So I said, okay, let's go. If I, if I screw this up, I can go back to engineering. So I left, I became an investment advisor. Uh, I did that for about eight years. I got my CFA in the process um, because I was very keen after several years to, to manage money um, as a pool, as opposed to dealing with individuals. I thought it would just be um, easier. Uh, I wasn't really enjoying having to debate every investment with each client and generally have an emotional discussion with them when the market was falling, that sort of thing. So I thought I'd rather just do this by myself. So I got my CFA and again, pretty random. I was out playing duplicate bridge one night with a, a fellow advisor and I was picking him up and he was late. So he said, have a seat in the living room until I get ready. And on his coffee table, there's a little clip out from the newspaper, a little ad that said portfolio manager wanted apply post office box one, two, three. So I said, are you applying for this? And he said, yeah. I said, well, sorry, but I'm going to apply too. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I applied. Uh, I remember there were 75 applicants. It was a firm called Cavelti Capital Management run by Peter Cavelti, who was a, uh, I'm going to call him a Swiss banker. He was Swiss. He had uh, lots of experience in, in gold and currencies, um, but he was looking for a portfolio manager because he didn't really have the mining equity analysis background. And he was close friends with Pierre Lassonde and Ned Goodman and others. And to be honest, he was sort of piggybacking their ideas, which was working out well for him, but he wanted someone to run the portfolios in a, in a more professional way. So during the interview, he asked me, what do you know about gold? And I said, well, look, I've, I've traded a few gold stocks, but I'm not an expert. And he said, but you can learn. I said, yeah, I think I can learn. So he said, okay, you're hired. You've got six months to learn how to invest in gold mining stocks, and then you run the portfolio. So boom, I'm in the gold business all of a sudden. Um, we were actually working at that time with Dutel Goodman, where Pierre Lassonde worked. So he was working with us, which was great. We were working with NM Rothschild out of London, which was fantastic. We were managing Swiss bank accounts. Uh, I really got exposed hard and fast into the gold world uh, in, in all kinds of avenues with, with Peter. And, uh, and that's how I got into the business. So um, interesting start, not planned, but um, it's worked out okay. So of all the qualities that you brought to this profession, what do you think was the key quality that made you successful? I think I'm a very strong analyst, um, good with numbers. And if I don't understand something, I really apply myself until I do. And when I came into the gold mining world, it wasn't that I didn't understand how to read a balance sheet or financial statements. That was, that was easy. Uh, but I didn't understand geology. I didn't understand metallurgy. I didn't understand mining engineering. Um, I didn't understand valuations that were available in the market at that time. You know, Barrick was trading at two times an asset value. Newmont was 1.8 times. Homestake mining was 1.5 times. And I'm thinking, okay, why are people paying premium valuations for these companies? And what does that actually mean in terms of, of making a return? Uh, and then, so I, I worked on that. Um, I focused on spending as much time on site, meeting with operators, uh, geologists, engineers, et cetera doing my own research independently to figure out you know, what was important when it came to analyzing a mining operation, um, technically speaking, from an engineering and, and geology and, and metallurgy perspective. And that, that's a long learning curve. It, it takes you a number of years to, to pick up all the tricks. I'll call them the tricks because when you're reading press releases, um, you know, things are not always stated in the most clear fashion. And 
when you do a deep dive into what they're actually saying, you realize they're understating perhaps the, the risk of what they're telling you and, and what are the possible repercussions of, of things not going quite the way they'd like them to. So that was a long, that's, that's a process actually that never ends. It, it really, you just keep learning. So, uh, you know, after a long career in the business with some success, you know, there were many losses along the way. And I would tell my friends sometimes over a beer that I said, I think I can write a book. And I'm going to call that book a hundred ways to, to lose money investing in mining stocks, because <laughs> there, there literally are a hundred ways uh, that you can get it wrong. And so risk man management is something that's become a focus of mine. I think early in my investment career, uh, when I didn't know very much, I think I thought I was smarter than I was. You know, I had some significant losses in various things that I'd done because I didn't really understand the process of what I was doing. And so that uh, chastened me very early in my career and, and maybe really do deep dives on due diligence to understand exactly what I'm getting into. Well, Kevin, let's take a deeper dive into how you have been so successful in your career, because that's what listeners want to hear. How do you factor in your macroeconomic analysis before you invest in specific companies? There are some resource fund managers I've talked to where they say, I'm just bottom up. I look at the fundamentals, but it seems to me that you have to take that in the context of the greater macro picture, don't you? Yeah, you do have to take, take it in the context. I would say I tend to be more of a bottom-up investor as well, but in terms of top-down, it's very important to understand where you are in the economic cycle because, as you know, any kind of recessionary period, mild or, or severe, uh, just cuts demand for commodities in general. And so you're, you're going to suffer uh, as the recession takes place. I think in the precious metal sector in particular, you actually have a slight advantage from a top-down perspective, because you normally see a shift in monetary policy, uh, a tightening response to improving economic conditions, which eventually rolls over into slowing economic conditions. But with gold being so sensitive to monetary policy and real rates of interest, you actually sort of get an advanced warning of what's coming. And you can tweak your portfolio uh, into more cash, more defensive positions, into more base metal companies with gold exposure as opposed to pure gold exposure. Uh, there are ways to um, you know, become more defensive as you see the risk rising. It doesn't mean you're going to avoid the pain of an economic downturn because I, you know, I can't say I've avoided any of them. I've, I've always suffered to some degree along with everybody else. But I, I think in general, I probably had more cash going into downturns than my, my peers. Um, I, I just think, again, I have that focus on risk mitigation. You mentioned the valuations of producers a few minutes ago. Could you walk us through how you value the, the gold producers or mining producers and define what it means to, to buy an undervalued producer? Yeah. So the starting point for valuation is always net asset value. And you can get a lot of reports from analysts telling you what they think the companies are worth. They'll vary a little bit, but generally they're in the ballpark that the net asset value of this company is, is X. And then they sort of arbitrarily, I think, assign a target on that stock of, of one point something times X with no real explanation for, for why. And if you ask them, they say, well, that's what the market pays for these types of assets. And there's no real explanation. Just live with it, expect this to happen. So that wasn't very satisfactory to me. Um, so I started thinking about it and I came to the conclusion that I actually summarized 
in a research report. I had five years as senior gold mining analyst with the Royal Bank of Canada. And my first research report, I called Valuation Kinetics. And I wrote this report because I knew I was coming into this analyst position with a very different perspective on gold mining equities than everybody I was competing against. And so I thought I better explain myself out of the gate. Otherwise, there's going to be problems with people accepting my research. So I wrote this piece called Valuation Kinetics, uh, explaining how NAV multiples in particular uh, affect your return potential and define your expectations when you when you buy a stock at a certain multiple to NAV. So I wrote that paper. I, I published it. The uh, investment banking team wasn't that happy because it sort of put a bad light on valuations. The sales team didn't know what to do with it. Um, it didn't make much of an impact uh, in the institutional world, but I did get a call from Placer Dome Mining. I got a call from Rio Algon Mining, and I got a call from the McGill um, University School of Finance in Montreal about the report. And they all asked copyright permission to reproduce it and use it within their organizations. So I thought, okay, these are serious players. They think there's some value in the report. So here's what the report had in it. If you're buying a mining company, you're effectively buying an operation with a reserve life. And I, I'm going to use Barrick Gold as an example here to just plain, explain the concept. For most of the past 30 years, Barrick has had a reserve life of 14 years, plus or minus a little bit. I think it's a little bit less on the minus side today, but remarkably about 14 years. And perhaps that was internal strategy to maintain that sort of mine life ahead of your production. But Having a 14-year mine life, the stock was trading at two times NAV. So I'm thinking, okay, what does that really mean? What, what am I buying here? What, what should I expect to get out of this? And if, if you look at um, reserve life as basically a term that you have to harvest cash flow to you, you're basically buying what's, in, in a basic sense, an, uh, an annuity. So you're buying an annuity for 14 years in the case of Barrick. So let's say Barrick's going to pay you a dollar a year for 14 years as they operate their mine. And I can buy that annuity in the marketplace. And if I look at it and I go, well, a dollar a year for 14 years, I want to make 5%, not terribly greedy, but I just want to make 5%. What's that worth? Well, it's worth $10. So I say, okay, I'll, I'll buy that for $10. And the market goes, hey, wait, Kevin, it's $20. It's two times NAV. So $10 is your 5% NAV one times. $20 is two times NAV. So I go, okay, well, why would I pay $20? So I asked the analysts, you've got a target of two times NAV on this thing. Why should I pay $20 for 14? Oh, well, gold, gold um, Barrick Gold, rather, is a great company, and they're going to find way more gold. So that mine life's not going to be 14 years. It's going to go on longer. You're going to get more money eventually. So you should pay a premium because it's such a quality company at discovering gold. And okay, there's some, there's some logic to that. Um, and here we are 30 years later, and Barrick's still producing the 14-year mine life. So that's... That's not bad logic, I guess. But when you look at the math, if I say, okay, if I pay $20 and I want to make a 5% return, what do I need Barrick to extend its reserve life to? How many years does it actually have to keep going? To, so I, I, I get $20 worth of 5% return. And the math on that for an annuity, if an annuity turns into a perpetuity, which means you get that payment every year forever, the math is it's the payment divided by the discount rate is what you would pay for infinite payments of that nature. So for a 5% discount rate, one divided by 0.05 is 20. So if I'm paying 20 instead of 10, two times NAV, I'm paying for Barrick to extend the mine life 
till the end of time. Now that doesn't sound so good. Okay. And it doesn't sound so, so reasonable anymore. And I will point out this, Barrick and others. Um, Barrick's had a phenomenal track record discovering gold, one of the best. But one of the ways these companies extend mine life is through merger and acquisition as well. And so there's a cost to that. Okay. Um, there's a cost to exploring for those extra ounces that's not on the snapshot valuation you're looking at now. It's future costs to be incurred. And so those costs, that dilution, those costs, and maybe the success rate doesn't continue as phenomenally as it had for Barrick in the future because they had one of the best discoveries on the planet, this gold strike mine in Nevada. You don't get those you know, all the time. And, and they eventually peter out. So I decided in 1996, um, the day that Barrick was added to the S&P 500 index, the stock went from about 26 US to about 30 US on, on that one day because of the index edition. I said, okay, I'm, I'm exiting Barrick. I'd done okay with it because it had a great uh, discovery rate, but I said, I'm out and I've never owned it since. So I sold at 30 US in 1996, the gold price was 400. I think today it's around 19 US and the gold price is uh, 1770. So if you held it because you love the company, for 25 years, you've lost a third of your money with the gold price quadrupling. Okay, <laughs> so that's the math. So if you look at mining companies in general, the longer the mine life and the higher the discount rate you apply, uh, base metal companies, for example, typically are capitalized in the market at 8% discount rates instead of five. The, the lower the NAV multiple premium is, to discount infinite reserve replacement. So with an 8% 20-year copper gold porphyry, you know, if you pay 1.2 times NAV, you're probably paying for that porphyry to last forever. So it's very important to recognize that if you're buying a, a stock at 1.5 times NAV or something, and it's got a 12-year mine life and you're paying for 27 years, you can, you can do the math and figure it out. You've got a negative carry on that investment. You should expect in a flat gold price environment, you should expect to have a, a loss every year offset by whatever discovery might happen. But generally, it's not enough to keep you ahead of the game. And I'll give you another example. The uh, senior gold index in Toronto here uh, in 2015, when gold got back down to 1,046, was trading at about the same levels it was trading at in 1999 when gold was 252. So again, a quadruple with no return. So the reason why gold equities in particular have under, underperformed dramatically, let's say in the past 17 years, is because in 2004, when they introduced gold ETFs, uh, institutional money managers, particularly generalists who didn't have to be in the sector, they said, well, I'm getting rid of this 1.8 times NAV stuff. I'm just going to buy gold. And by the way, looking back at the historical performance of these equities versus gold, I'm actually better in gold and on a risk-adjusted basis I'm way better because gold is uh, less volatile than the equities. And so, by the way, the way you maximize risk-adjusted returns in the equity sector is to focus on, on, on a wealth creation portfolio, which we can talk about later, but um, just, just holding producing mining companies that replace reserves every year, which is great, don't expect to, to do very well. And I want to give you one more confirmation of the thesis. If you look at Barrick for most of the last 30 years, they've produced five or 6 million ounces a year. And 
to find five or six million ounces every year to replace that is a phenomenal undertaking. It's high praise. That's an exceptional accomplishment. But every January, when Barrett comes out and says, okay, we produced 5, 5 million ounces rather last year, but good news, we found another 5 million ounces. You think, wow, 5 million ounces. This stock should be ripping today. Nada. Crickets. Doesn't do anything. Why not? It's paid for. It's already paid for. And so the stock does nothing. And if they come out and said, we produced 5 million ounces last year and discovered 4 million more, okay, well, that's great. 4 million ounces. Guess what? The stock goes down. Because you're now showing that your reserve replacement capability is, is rolling over and the market says, uh-oh, and starts to sell off the stock. Your premium now multiple starts to, to erode. And today we have Barrick, in fact, the senior, senior sector trading at pretty close to one times NAV. And so the market has really adjusted massively the multiples they'll pay for a quality gold producer. So when generalist money managers rush into gold stocks, like we saw Buffett last year, what brings someone like Buffett? Is it the cash flow they see in the quarterlies plus the dividend? Is that their analysis for why they would rush into a gold stock? I would say it's it's not that at all. Uh, I would say Warren Buffett in particular is a value investor, uh, really concerned about return on equity as well as those cash flow EBITDA metrics and dividends. But the gold sector doesn't provide that. Uh, the gold sector has proven to be a capital destroying sector. So thematically, you wouldn't expect Warren to be in the sector ever uh, unless he was making a call on, on the asset class, which he's done in the past. He made a call on silver back in the mid nineties, bought a whole bunch of it, three fifty four bucks and wrote it up to seven or $8 and, and kicked it out and made a good pass at it. He, he just analyzed the commodity and said, this, this is an imbalance. We can't keep the price at three bucks because of the supply demand situation. And so he rode the metal. Uh, I think he, he took a pass on Barrick as you, as you, point out. Um, but I think he did it just based on his view of macro factors that were favorable towards the gold sector period. When he comes in, he wants the most liquid uh, names that he can get into because he's got size. He wants not to disturb the market getting in or not to disturb the market getting out. So he picks the biggest, safest names like Barrett, not because he loves their long-term performance, but he says that this is a safe way to play the asset class rally that I'm envisioning. What, what about developers? Kevin, can you share with us how you approach analyzing a developer? Okay, so I'm going to talk about developers, but I'm going to give you the last part of the, the seniors, so to speak. So if you're looking at a company trading at a NAV multiple that leaves you a bit cold, um, the situation I was in running... The Blanchard Precious Metals Fund, for example, back in the 1990s, is you know what? I had to be invested. I had to buy something. And, and you needed liquidity because you got redemptions. So you had to have some of these liquid names in the portfolio. So then the process is well, which one do I want to own? Do I want to own Newmont at 1.8, Barrick at two, Homestick at 1.5, or something else? And in general, um, there are four things you can do with gold stocks to make money. Uh, assuming gold prices, the gold price is flat and it's never helping you. You have to look at three, uh, I'm going to call them yield factors because it's all about yield. Investment's about yield. But the first yield is simply your free cash flow yield on your enterprise value. Okay, what's that? All things being equal, if it's 5%, you're going to have 5% more cash in the bank next year. Stock's probably 5% higher. So you're going to make 5%. The second one is risk transition yield. That's the phrase that I give to that uh, 
uh, gain in a stock's price as it de-risks from developing an asset into operating an asset. And that could be substantial. Uh, I'll give you, a, I'll talk about that in the developer sec- section. And the third factor, and by far the most important, is what is your wealth creation yield? So with Barrick, you could calculate uh, the 6 million ounce inventory gain every year divided by the uh, 104 million ounces they had. And you can say, okay, it's uh, 7% or something. But the problem is that's already paid for. So really it's zero. Okay. Uh, but Barrick would offer you probably a 4 or 5% free cash flow yield. Okay, not so bad. And then risk transition yield, there is none for Barrick because it's, it's operating everything. So your overall return expectation is low single digit. So because it's low single digit, that's completely unacceptable, particularly when you're running a fund with, a let's say, a 2% MER on it. You know, you're just treading water if you're only making a few points. So the fourth um, tool for gaining yield in the gold sector, if gold is not helping you, is harvesting sector volatility. Because the one thing gold has for it is the sector is quite volatile. And for the first 16 years of my career, um, gold never helped me for more than a few months. And I started in 88 with gold at 420 and didn't get above 420 again until 2004, I think. So 16 years of suffering with gold banging around between 300 and 400, but then as low as 250. So you had to um, harvest that volatility which means you had to develop some skills, both fundamental and technical, in determining which way gold and silver were going. And and you would trade that volatility. You'd keep a core position in stocks you liked, but you'd be selling rallies and buying dips. And and I had one of the highest portfolio turnover metrics uh, in the American fund market. I think one year it was 174%. So I did that because I thought, these are hot potatoes. You know, I just got to trade them before something bad goes wrong or, or the overvaluation catches up with them. And I'll tell you one anecdote. I was uh, actually called by the, the trustees of the fund once and they said, uh, we're not really pleased with your performance. And I said, you got to be kidding. I'm top decile in the U.S. What's going on? They said, well, we don't think you're working hard enough. And I said, well, why would you say that? Well, you only own 26 names in the portfolio. Your competitors have 50 or 60. And I said, yes, that's right. And I said, I'll tell you, of those 26 names that I own, there's probably only four that I would own personally. The rest are the best I can do in an overvalued sector. And (laughs) I got silence. And I said, I'm not changing the approach. I'm not going to diversify the portfolio by adding things that don't make sense, just so investors can look at more names. I said, I'm running concentrated portfolios. I said the return drivers in the sector are hard to find. When I do find them, I'll take bigger positions and own less names. So that's how I run the portfolio. Now, turning to developers, if you think about developers, free cash flow yield, zero. Um, Wealth creation yield, zero. And why is it? It's typically zero. It may not be, but it's typically zero because once they get to the decision they're going to develop the asset, they stop drilling for more gold you know, in terms of major expansion of the resource, they turn to infill drilling, which is helpful, but not really uh, a big wealth creator. And more importantly, they do a lot of condemnation drilling. So they're looking, where do I put the mill? Where do I put the waste dump, the tailings pond? I got to drill all that out, make sure I'm not putting all those long-term things on top of gold. And so the wealth creation goes to zero. So 
Oh, first return component zero, second return component zero. How about the third risk transition yield? Ah, yes, I can make money there. Okay, so the company gets to a point, you know, the Lasan curve where they're big enough to, to build this thing. They go do a financing at $5. The analysts say this thing's going to be $7.50 in three years when it's in production. And you buy that financing and the stock goes to three bucks with no change in the gold price. And you're thinking, what? What am I missing? And what you're missing is that the market discounts uh, the risk of developing an asset because there's all kinds of risks. You know, there's permitting risk. We run out of money. Uh, will the government change the rules? Will, will there be people protesting the social license or environmental issues? I mean, there's all kinds of things that can go wrong. Uh, so the market discounts uh, that asset typically to about 17%. Not the, not the 5% that's going to be there when it's in production, but 17%. That's an empirical observation that I've just made over many years back calculating what stocks are trading for. Because I've had these debates with analysts as a portfolio manager. Well, Kevin, you should be buying the stock. It's cheap as chips. And I, I say, well, back calculate the IRR on this. And they say, well, it's 17, 18%. I say, well, that's about right. So it's going nowhere. So eventually, you will get that 17 or 18%. You'll get it faster um, if the gold price trend is flat to rising. And you'll get it slower if it's flat to falling. because People will not re-rate a stock in a falling gold price environment prematurely because they say, well, what's the point? By the time I get the first gold pour, the gold price could be 100 bucks lower, so I'm not really going to win. And so if there's a downward bias in the sector, you can, you can wait till very late in the game before you get that re-rating. Now, but here's the math. If you have a 10-year mine life that's trading at a 17% discount rate instead of five, it's trading at 0.6 times NAV. If you're going to go from 0.6 times NAV to one times NAV, that's a two-thirds return, 66%. And you can get that in the last six to nine months, uh, sometimes, sometimes longer. But you know, in the last six to nine months, most of that you can pick up if the mine operates properly, starts up properly. So you can get a massive return. And I did have a number of those names in my portfolio. I'm not averse to holding them, but I, I would generally enter them. Uh, I'd let the financing for the project build go by and let a year go by maybe, and then start looking at it. And by then it was it's usually punished. <laughs> and how would site tours factor in? Would you go visit the mine before you would invest at this point yes. or, or the construction? Yes. Um, so again, that, that window in my mind for the optimal time to visit the site, you had to let time pass to let them get going to get all their lead, lead order equipment on site, the big uh, sag mills and whatnot, get them on site, get the power lines built and make sure all the permits are in place. Uh, if, and, then, and then you go to site, you have a look. And if all of those boxes I mentioned earlier are checked off, there's no issues with uh, you know, environment or social license or tax changes or government doing things. You haven't lost your mill to some guy in China who jumped the queue and took your mill from you. Uh, if all those things are happening, you talk to the crew, they make a really good presentation. They're enthused about it. They're technically strong when you ask them questions. They give you good technical answers. Then you don't wait to fly home. You just call the trading desk and say, okay, start buying this thing. And by the time you're home, you've got a million shares. And then you just ride it through. And that generally works out. Not always. Um, I'll give you an example. When a Cisco started up the Malartic mine, which I made a lot of money on a Cisco during the expiration phase. Um, and I, I exited. I got back in again for the development of the Malartic mine. But uh, the mill circuit wasn't designed properly. That would add an extra crusher on the front to get the recoveries that they needed. And things, things went south for a while. So it didn't, wasn't a good startup. And I will say one thing, a general observation about the industry that investors should be aware of. 
there's been a tendency over the past, I'm going to say 10, 15 years almost, for companies to undercapitalize startups. Okay, so they they go cheap on the mill. Uh, they they don't buy the truck fleet. They use a contractor. Sometimes they'll even finish the pre the feasibility study. They'll stop at a pre feasibility study or a preliminary economic analysis, which have much higher variability in rates of return analysis confidence. And so you're getting riskier and riskier projects, and it's because the sector's being denied capital at an affordable price. And it's been not being denied capital because it's done such a bad job of allocating capital. So the market said, you know what, uh, a little bit too risky for me. So companies shave capital all the time to try to get into production. So I, if I was still actively managing portfolios, I would probably be less interested now in developers than I used to be. Because I'd be very, I'd be much, much more careful if that's even possible uh, about getting involved particularly with a team that hasn't done it before and you, you know they're not you don't know if they're shaving corners i mean sometimes you can figure it out but not always so this golden runway you know that year going into production where you say i'm going to get 100 percent re-rate if everything works out i've talked to three or four mind developers or executives in charge of mind development in the last month and i ask them about costs and i've been told steel's double Lumbers four times what was in the feasibility. So as an investor, I mean, we can't even take a feasibility study done two years ago. It's almost not applicable to current costs, is it? Yeah, absolutely right. It's out the window. Everything's changed. Uh, my son's in the steel business and he's got U.S. suppliers. He got a call recently saying, oh, that steel you used to buy for X, it's now X plus 28%. No discussion. So that's what's happening. Uh, energy costs are way up. Uh, I would actually caution investors now that there's more risk in open pit mining operations with big truck and shovel fleets uh, on an energy perspective, and particularly if there's standby power generation, if you're not on the grid, uh, versus a smaller underground, higher grade operation with less energy intensive uh, production. So yeah, we're heading into a different world here where development risk is escalating because of the input factors. So you, you're Kevin, you're so good at quantifying things. In your experience, can you quantify how many feasibility studies actually hit or how many hit within about 20% of the cost estimates, would you say? Just a rough estimate. Um, I'll be generous and I'll say that half of them work. Half of them work. Okay. I think I yeah, remember yeah. 35% from some mining book I read. Uh, okay. I, I said I was being generous. Okay. You did. Okay. Well, let's, let's get to the most speculative of them all. Explorers. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Uh, how do you value and explore? What would you want to see in an exploration company for you to take a stake in that company? Okay. Um, so first of all, <clears throat> before you even take a meeting with the exploration company, um, you want to know what the team has done in the past. Have they been successful? Have they been successful on the type of asset that they're drilling or exploring now? Um, have they had any scandals, embarrassments uh, in the past? Have they managed previous companies from a governance perspective in a fine way or, or an unattractive way? And so you, they, they sort of have to pass um, a quality control check before you even take the meeting. And once you decide that these guys are good, serious, knowledgeable players, successful, hopefully players, even then um, I would take a grassroots exploration meeting just to understand what they're doing and why. But 
I would almost never invest. Um, with the exception that I did run flow-through partnerships in Canada for many years. I had to invest a couple hundred million dollars a year of tax-advantaged funds into early-stage exploration. So I did invest on a tax-advantaged basis in grassroots-type exploration. Uh, but with regular money and in the fund, um, almost never would I buy a grassroots exploration story. Um, simply because there's no way to determine value out of the gate. Most companies for, in my career would get a $25 million market valuation just for showing up with a property. Um, always astounded me, but there just seemed to be enough people willing to roll the dice on these things that the valuations were there. So that, that didn't interest me at all. And so the guy that comes in with a 10 cent a share offer on a grassroots expiration with a couple of interesting grab samples or whatever, I was gonna say, no, no, no thanks. Uh, when are you drilling? Okay. Oh, well, as soon as I raise the money. Okay, get your money, drill some holes, let's have a look. If I like what I see on the drill holes, come back and see me and then we'll talk. And I need the drill hole data to ascertain any sense of early stage value and more importantly, uh, potential, okay? Um, are they hitting wide widths of steady mineralization, decent grade? Is it, are they narrow, nuggety, hit and miss? low success rate, um, are there structural controls in this? You know, what, what are they actually doing here? If, if you check all those boxes and say, well, this actually looks like it's a pretty pretty easy exploration story. They're just chasing this vein and the vein goes on surface for kilometers. You say, okay, what did you spend on the drill program? Two million bucks. What did you find? 200,000 ounces back of the envelope. Okay, so $10 an ounce finding costs. You're coming to me, you wanna check to drill some more. I'll give you the check for $2 million. Go drill the same thing. Okay, so for $2 million, if I have confidence that they're going to replicate to a large degree what they just did with the last $2 million, and they're going to double their gold inventory, okay, just they're going to double the value of the company with my $2 million. And if a company's trading at X, okay, 100% plus. So I'll, I'll take that risk. It may not work out that way, but at least I give myself some parameters for return uh, potential on that. And I will, I will step back a bit and say, when they come in with those you know, dozen drill holes, I'll do my very best to put a, a block model around that, sort of a resource model around that, those drill holes and say, okay, this thing's roughly, let's say it's 100 meters by 100 meters by 100 meters. Okay, that's a, that's a million cubic meters, specific gravity, 2.7. So they got 2.7 million tons. It's had a 10th of an ounce, they have 270,000 ounces, boom. Okay, so you, you, I know what you got, roughly. Okay, it's not perfect, but it's a, it's a guesstimate. So I can, I can assign a value to that based on a per ounce metric related to the grade and simplicity of mining, whatever you got there. Okay, if it's open pit or underground, it's a different calculation, high strip ratio, um, whatever the case may be. You can, you can, you know, very high grade, maybe 100 bucks an ounce, low grade, 25 bucks an ounce in between, somewhere in between. You can throw some numbers on this thing and get a sense of what the value of the asset should be, uh, what it could be with the next drill program, and then calculate your return, and then compare that to other opportunities available to you. And it's important, you know, even with all those, you know, caretaking steps to de-risk what you're doing, understand what you're doing, uh, you're gonna miss a bunch of them because it's, uh, it's, a, it's a difficult business to find ore bodies. So I would typically put, 
one half percent to one and a half percent weights in my portfolio in these types of investments. You know, a half percent if my confidence was low, if the grade was mediocre or average, and one and a half percent if I thought it was exceptional, like a, a, a malartic opportunity. Um, or earlier in my career, I had the SK Creek um, discovery opportunity. You know, something like that, you'd give it uh, pretty high value per per ton or per ounce metrics because the grade was phenomenal. So if those worked out, your half to one and a half percent investment would be a three, four, five, ten bagger, and you'd make several percentage points of return to add to your portfolio. The ones that missed were the subsequent drilling programs didn't quite pan out as you'd like. Maybe they found something, but it wasn't great. Um, you would exit those names and typically take a modest loss on them. Not a wipeout, but you know, a modest loss because there's still something there that they're going to continue to explore. But I generally wouldn't stick around. Um, once the drilling, a round or a phase of drilling was not as good as I'd like, I, I generally start to, to fade the position. Would you require a warrant from the company, the issuer, before you would take a position? Because like people like Rick Rule have been on the show. They said, I'm not going to do it without a warrant because it's too risky. Other people like Joe Mazumdar have told me, I don't want a warrant because I don't want a bloated share structure. I want the project to be attractive enough that it can attract capital without a warrant. Yeah. So it's an excellent question. And there's not one answer for that because, um, look, you'd, you'd always like to have a warrant. If, if you can get it, take it. However, the downside of warrants is they put a lid on the stock to some degree and they act as magnets. Um, when, a, when a stock trades above a warrant strike price and the expiry date on the warrant is within, say, six months or so, you get this sort of magnetic pull back down to the warrant prices. People exercise the warrants and liquidate the stock. So you have to be very careful of how that warrant that you're asking for fits into the capital structure because capital structure already has other um, derivative elements to it, you know, options and various things and maybe other warrants that exist there. And I will tell some brokers, um, I've looked at the capital structure of this company. I don't care what they have. Don't even bring them in to see me because this is this is a nightmare. And this stock's going nowhere because there's just a, a massive ceiling of these warrants over, over top. So yes, you'd want to get a warrant if you can. I can sympathize with that. But at the same time, um, particularly with the flow-through investments, where I had a four-month hold period, and then I had typically 12 to 18 months to liquidate the position before that partnership matured and had to be liquefied, I actually didn't want the warrants getting in the way of my liquidity in the future or impeding any upside. Um, it was kind of a, a game tactic. Uh, you know, how do I optimize my chances of getting out of this investment? Because I have to over a certain time frame. And that, in that case, I would generally uh, be much more interested in getting a concession on price. Now, just give me a lower price. You can forget the warrants, but I'll take a lower price. And I, I found that worked out better for me in most, most situations. And, and as you know, most warrants, particularly in the junior expiration space, they expire worthless anyway. As do the shares. Sometimes <laughs> <laughs> the shares, yeah. <laughs> so what about management compensation? Share with us your uh, what you would desire in management compensation in a company you would invest in. Yeah, so I can tell you exactly that because you know I've just gotten involved in starting up Star Royalties. And I came in as a consultant initially, and after a few months was offered a job to be the CIO. And I said, I'll take the job on, on a couple of conditions. I said, the first condition is you can't pay me anything. Okay? I said, 
I do not want to be uh, in a position of ever being criticized for what I take out of the company, no matter what it is. I just don't want it. And secondly, I think it's, uh, if, I, if I'm going to build a successful company, I want to keep the cash burn as low as possible. And I, I want the market to pay me 20 times cash flow, as opposed to me taking out a, a check every month that the government takes half of. So what's the point of that? So compensation in the mining industry um, is notorious for being on the high side. There's been some, I won't mention names or companies, but there's been some just absorbent uh, packages paid for companies that don't even do well. And, you know, why is this guy getting paid millions of dollars and the shares are doing nothing and or going down and the assets are weak and you're making bad deals and what, what, what are we paying you for? So I think compensation, I, when I look at a junior company, I look at where they're spending their money. They don't have much to spend. Typically, they got a, a $5 million financing, let's say. Okay, let's go. Okay, you're paying your management team $2 million. And see, you're spending uh, three quarters of a million on conferences, you know, your office and other things, travel. Gee, you got like 800000 left for drilling. So where's your priorities? And, you know, I like to see guys in companies that will take that financial risk, align themselves with the shareholders that, look, I'm not taking anything out of this or as little as possible. Maybe, you know, a lot of guys, they got mortgages and kids that they got to pay. So I don't, I don't, uh, uh, begrudge anybody having a salary, but uh, you know, even the star guys. I said, look, one of my conditions for me coming in is you take below market compensation, and we align ourselves with equity by buying the financing rounds with our own money. We're going to have a compensation committee that's very experienced that'll determine what sort of you know options or RSUs are appropriate. And in the case of Star, by the way, even though our compensation committee is very experienced. We had everything they decided uh, vetted by an outside compensation um, consultancy firm just to make sure we're, we're beyond reproach on anything we did. So um, clearly that's not the norm uh, in the mining industry. It hasn't been for most of my career. Maybe it's getting better. Um, but if, if the management team is, is making a good living with nothing happening, I'm out. You know, I, I want you to be sweating a bit along with me. So you're running a royalty company. What do you see as the role of royalty companies in the mining space? Because people like Rob McEwen have kind of considered them, if I, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but maybe a little predatory to where he doesn't like some of the deals that are done and thinks it's uh, it's not advantageous to the producers or the shareholders of producers. What do you think the role of uh, royalty companies is in the mining space? Yeah, the role of royalty companies is to provide capital at a competitively attractive price. So you can get capital now on the debt side for a junior situation at double digit, 12% plus or minus. You can go and get a gold loan or a gold prepay, 12 to 18% money, depending where you are. In the good old days of overvalued equities, you could get money at, in my opinion, basically nothing. If you're, if you're selling equity at 1.5 times NAV, you're basically getting it for free. Your cost of capital is zero. And so royalty companies can't compete with 0% cost of capital. We can't. You know, you have to, you're always in a business, you're arbitraging your cost of capital with how you're deploying that capital. So if our cost of capital is, let's say, 
5%, we want to deploy it at 7, 8, 9, 10%. So we have some spread there, or the, otherwise we have no business, right? So we can come in and offer capital at 5 to 10%. And you would say, well, why would we take that even? I can just go issue equity. Yeah, but guess what? That game's kind of over now because if you look at valuations in the gold mining equity world, the senior producers are trading at, uh, I think, 1.1 times now on average now. The intermediates, 250,000 ounces and up, are at 0.755 times now. The juniors are at 0.65 times now. And that's at a 14.75 long term gold price. So when you're at 0 0.6, 0 0.7, 0 0.8 times NAV at a 14.75 gold price, guess what? Your equity cost of capital is meaningfully double digit. It might even be 15%. And so if we come in at 5 to 10, depending on the project risk, the grade, et cetera. And by the way, that 5 to 10 range depends on, is there high wealth creation potential here? Check, you get 5% or we're willing to pay 5 is there mediocre? Seven or eight. Is there not so much? Ten. So we look at our, our total return based on great, the seven, eight percent cash flow return. That's great. But really, we want to have that alpha coming from the um, expiration success, the wealth creation return yield. Uh, and that's how our overall um, commitment to pay a certain or to offer capital at a certain yield is, is set. In terms of being predatory, um, yeah, I can. I get the sense of that because look, when you're when you're issuing equity, you're selling a, a percentage of your upside on expiration to investors. When we're coming in with a stream or a royalty, you're selling a percentage of the upside to us as well. So if if you're issuing capital to us, um, you know, ten million dollars for for two percent, okay, you can you can work out what that would be equivalent to in selling equity. So how much equity would you have to sell to give away the 2%? It, it's, it's not that dissimilar. So selling equity can be viewed as predatory as well. It's just a matter of what it's costing you. Fair point, fair point. Uh, when you're interviewing management for a potential investment, what non-traditional questions do you ask them that are not the standard questions or template that you see out there? Okay, I'm gonna start with two quick tra traditional ones first. Uh, have you done this before? <laughs> okay. Often not. Okay. Two, are you planning to op build and operate whatever you find? And, and that affects my view on them because sometimes I know that's a disingenuous response. If they say yes, when they've never done it before and I have no chance of doing it. Um, but I, I just want to get a flavor for, for management's ability to execute what they're telling me they're trying to execute and whether what they're telling me is actually true. That that's that uh, in terms of non-traditional um, I would say the number one question is, first of all, what's your company worth? Okay, and that, that may sound like a tr traditional question, but I don't think it's asked very often. And because I know it's not asked very often because I get a blank stare frequently when I say, and they'll blank out and go, oh, uh, oh, well, so and so research analyst says it's worth this. And so, and, and the street thinks this consensus. I said, I'm not asking what the street thinks. I know what the street thinks. I can read the research. What do you think your company's worth and why? And I'll tell you, I would say 80% of the CEOs can't answer that question very well. It's really shocking. And so they, they can only give that, you forward looking statements, essentially? Well, it's, it's not that they can only give me forward looking. Yeah, it's essentially that, but. 
it's almost as if they haven't thought it through, uh, which it's, it's shocking it, uh, to me. They're saying, okay, this, this analyst thinks that, and I like his number because he's given me a premium valuation, so I'll, I'll go with that. So you're and asking them the liquidation value of the company, essentially, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so what's the takeout value of the company today, for example, and why? And what do you think the value will be in a year or two if you're successful in executing? And I, I've just found that there's not a lot of ability. I mean, some guys are great at it. Um, other, most of them, not so much. And it just gives me a sense, because then, then I come after them with, uh, you want me to invest money in this thing. And you're telling me, you can't really tell me why or what I should pay this price. So just depend on the research analysts. And, and no offense to the research community, but the targeting of, of what stocks should trade at, it's, it's too high all the time, like all the time. So you can't go with it. And so anyway, that just gives me a sense of, of how in tune with their business they happen to be. And lastly, the most fun one, uh, which I've had, I've had this the greatest answers to and really helpful answers, is you sit through a glowing presentation, you know, 30 PowerPoint slides on how amazing this opportunity is. And then at the end, you say, okay, great. Thank you for that. Uh, but tell me, what's not going quite as well as you'd like? And then in many cases, the tale of woe that you hear about, oh, well, the, the mill's delayed, the guys are going on strike, the government's talking about back taxes on the property, we got Greenpeace blocking the road to the mine, all that stuff that doesn't come out in press releases or quarterly reports. And, uh, and you know what? Those guys I'll actually stick with, okay? If, if whatever they're telling me doesn't kill the story, but it's just something I factor into my risk assessment, I like the honesty because I, I know I can engage with them and get a real discussion. I've had a couple of situations where I've literally had a meeting with a company on, on Monday and asked that question. And the guy's thinking, can't think of anything. Everything's just amazing. Next day, operating update, disaster, stocks down 40%. Uh, I've had that happen to me a couple of times where the guy says, no, can't think of anything. And in one case, the company almost went bankrupt. That, yeah, actually, both companies almost went bankrupt. Couldn't think of anything that wasn't going well. Now, I get the pressure about, you know, disclosure issues and what you can say and everything, but um, you can, as a CEO, I think, characterize how your operation is going, good and bad. There's always bad. Come on, there's, there's always something that's not going great. Um, and the guys that just come in and say, can't think of anything bad, generally, I don't, I don't invest do you try to get them to lie to you? Because Rick Rule has told me he tries to get the, <laughs> he'll ask them a question that he already knows the answer to, to where it's in their short-term best interest to lie to him. And if they lie to him, he says, never again. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think I've thought of it the same way as Rick, but I know what he's saying. And I certainly uh, push them hard and give them a chance to go down the wrong path where I know it's the wrong path. And I, I'll call them out on it. And I think one of the greatest compliments I've had was from the, uh, the mining sales guy at the Royal Bank. He said, Kevin, I've got companies that are afraid to come see you. And I said, great. Let's Even though you have way. money, to, you could write a check. Yeah, but <laughs> they're, 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 they're afraid to come see me because you know, I'll politely dissemble their arguments um, if they're not making sense to me. Oh, well, that was quite the compliment. Well, you <laughs> yeah. mentioned at the outset 
that you can write a book, 100 Ways to Lose Money in the Mining Sector. I'm looking forward to reading the book. But in the meantime, for the sake of me and my listeners, what would be one of your biggest mistakes and what's the autopsy of that mistake? Okay, there's been more than one, I'll say. Uh, But one that comes to mind, and in general, by the way, when I've made mistakes, it's because I've bent my rules. As you can tell, I've got a lot of rules. And sometimes you bend them for what you think are good reasons, but it comes back to bite you. So one of the rules I bent with Allied Nevada, which ran the Highcroft mine, uh, which was a, an oxide uh, gold, silver, heap leach operation with potential to transition into a sulfide, uh, long life sulfide, high volume, high tonnage and high production uh, operation with a new mill. And so I knew the operating team. I liked them. I'd, work, I'd invested with them before. I was comfortable. The board was good. Bob Buckin was on the board. Great guy. And uh, so I thought, okay, I'm going to get invested in this thing. And I built up a couple of million shares, average cost of maybe $17, $18. Uh, so I had $35 million investment in this thing. And I went to site in September of 2011. Stock was about $40. So I was, you know, I was up uh, a bunch of money, 40 million bucks maybe. And when I got to site, um, I went to site because I was trying to assess, A, the company was ramping up oxide production, which was good, free cash flows increasing, helped the balance sheet, all good stuff, uh, but also to assess the, uh, the mill situation, what they're planning to do about financing the mill, because this could have been about a $400 million investment. And so I was already breaking one rule of mine, which was to not get in front of a massive financing like that. And... I'm not sure why I bent the rule, but silver was rocking. This was 2011. They had a big silver footprint. And I was looking at a valuation on this stock of about 70 plus dollars. So trading at 40, I said, okay, I'm getting in front of the financing, but man, I'm at a deep discount valuation here still. So I'm going to ride this thing. And I got to site and uh, first thing I noticed was nothing was happening. So I said, well, you're having a site tour and nothing's happening? Oh, sorry, uh, our big uh, hydraulic shovel caught fire yesterday. And I said, well, you should have another shovel. Oh, that was on a barge coming from Japan, but that 2011 tsunami sunk the barge. And so that shovel's now on order here in six months. And I thought, oh, so not good. So I called my trading desk and I said, just start lightening up on this stock a little bit. So they started selling. And... Then the conversation came around to financing. And I was there for the reason of I had a strong opinion on what they should do. And my strong opinion was uh, do a massive silver note. So raise $400 million backed by the silver in the property. If you have a silver convertible note, you typically get a, a mid to low single digit coupon on it, which would be great. You're giving away some silver upside, of course, but really who cares? You got so much silver, it doesn't matter. There's no equity dilution at all. And I thought this was a great solution. So I suggested it to them, uh, to the CEO, and he loved it. Like in front of the whole crowd, he said, oh, I love, I love that idea. I'm going to go to the board with it. So I, I kind of went away thinking, okay, uh, temporary operating issues, you know, a quarter or two of bad stuff. So I'll lighten up my position. I'll probably take a bit of a hit short term. They'll get the shovel in, back on track. They'll do the financing. And this thing starts to rip again. Um, unfortunately, that happened to be the peak in the metal price cycle. And so silver started to plummet precipitously. And so I told my trader to step on the gas a bit selling shares, but the bid fell away so quickly that uh, 
I think the stock was below 30 in a heartbeat. And I said, okay, slow down. Let's just see what happens. But you know what? They then, for some reason, when it rains, it pours. They let the, uh, the heat leach sour. So the heat leaches have to be kept in an alkaline condition. And for some reason, they didn't supply enough lime to the pads as they were ramping up the tonnage. And so the lime helped to keep the acid uh, balanced properly. And, and the, the pads went acidic. Recoveries dropped and the whole thing just went bleh in terms of like no cash flow, nothing. And I eventually ended up selling the stock uh, as this thing went into basically bankruptcy um, for about a, I'm going to say about a $20 million loss. So I had a $40 million gain turned into a $20 million loss because I didn't respect my, my rules and I, I didn't act, act on what I was seeing. And one thing I think I may have mentioned, not on this call, but in an earlier chat, in mining, when something goes wrong, Sell your position, figure it out later. You know, you've always got time to get back in later because these, these problems that occur, they last for several quarters, if not longer, typically, particularly if there's balance sheet risk here. So I didn't, I didn't follow that basic rule of mine and it cost me. Kevin, I definitely don't think I'm smarter than you, but I actually made money on Highcroft Mining Warrants last year because oh, there's tradable <laughs> warrants they're resurrecting the project did you know that <laughs> i know that and look there's there's something there we'll see what the new owners do with it but there's something there yep yep well as we conclude you've been so generous with your time and your insights it's been a blessing uh your macro view of the opportunity in mining stocks right now perhaps just give us a thumbnail overview sure so i'll, I'll talk about precious metals in particular kind of my my sweetheart Gold correlates extremely well with U.S. deficit spending and uh, with long-term real rates of return on the 10-year Treasury bond. And just to give you a, a thumbnail on that, when did gold bottom out recently? 2015 at 1,046. That's actually coincident with the bottoming in U.S. deficits at 484 billion. And that was the bottom in deficits. And they started to go back on the increase to, to survive on financing. And, and gold came back. And now we're in a situation where with the new long-term infrastructure um, initiatives, et cetera, spending initiatives, and just the, the ongoing, uh, you know, sort of billion to two billion to three billion, depending on uh, deficits that are being run, uh, it, it appears to me that there's a, a bull market in U.S. deficits for the foreseeable future. And as a corollary to that, the Federal Reserve talks a tight Tough game about, you know, um, removing accommodation and quantitative easing and raising rates. But I think it's whistling past the graveyard. I don't think it really can. Um, the level of U.S. debt right now will be plus 30 trillion once they get the, the debt ceiling dealt with. Um, you know, you throw a few points of interest on that and you're starting to consume 25, 30% of all revenues coming into the U.S. government. So, they just can't take rates very high. They can't take rates higher than inflation. So we're going to be, in a, I think, in a permanent negative real rate environment, uh, which gold thrives in. So that's the macro environment. And look, if there's a, we have a risk of a deflationary scenario if if rates spike or if the pandemic gets worse or something. Or coming out of China, perhaps. Coming well, who, yes, China's not doing well as we know. Uh, you know, global bottleneck issues are causing problems. But if that macro picture worsens into another slowdown, that's going to be bad for gold and all commodities initially. But it's going to just exacerbate fiscal stress to an enormous degree where I think gold would snap back extremely quickly. Uh, the Fed, as we've seen, 
reacts faster and faster and faster to any kind of physical stress because it has to. It just has to. So we're going to be in a situation where I think free money is the norm for, again, the foreseeable future, in which case gold should just do better and better. I will say that gold takes a backseat to the S&P 500. If the S&P 500 is making new highs every month, then gold tends to, to underperform. But nonetheless, the trend is up. So on a macro picture, I personally think that stocks are going to do fine for uh, a couple more years because I think there will be no deliberate attempt to slow the stock market because the U.S. needs that wealth creation, even if it's kind of artificial, the U.S. needs that wealth creation to carry a bigger and bigger debt load. And so I think no matter what the Fed says, they're closet in the closet saying, we're going to just support this game for as long as we possibly can. So I think all assets will probably do okay. And until there's some event uh, and then, but I think gold and commodities in particular have a, have a bright future. And then lastly, uh, the carbon markets, do you think that's going to even do better than a lot of these commodities we invest in, nickel, copper, gold? Yeah, we're in Canada, we're already seeing carbon credit pricing um, in the compliance market, which is decreed by the federal government, go from $40 this year to 50 next, 65 up to $170 a ton by 2030. Uh, other countries have similar bull market pricing structures built in. Um, we're in countries that don't have regulated pricing structures, the voluntary markets are taking prices higher uh, significantly already. We're looking at some carbon credit opportunities in agriculture, regenerative agriculture in the US. And we think we're being very conservative using $15 a ton for carbon credits because we're seeing 20 to $27 a ton already in the regen ag sector and with the trend being up. So look, at definitely a bull market in carbon um, credits. There's just has to be that financial inducement to to make this happen in a meaningful way by the targets that are set by the Paris Agreement, et cetera. So it, it just has to be, they can't stop, they can't, can't reverse it. Excellent. All right. Well, if uh, listeners are just learning of you for the first time, they would find you at your website, Star Royalties. Is that right? Is that the best place to follow up with you? That's correct. Yeah. Okay. It's okay. funny because I've, I've actually never joined LinkedIn uh, because I've always been overwhelmed with contacts. And I didn't want to get more contact. But now that I've got a new a new position, I'm going to get myself on LinkedIn. So maybe people can get me through LinkedIn as well. And what about Twitter? I'm not asking you to join, <laughs> but some executives are on Twitter. <laughs> uh, I think our CEO will handle the Twitter for us. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll let him do that. You'll, you'll, go, uh, you'll be analyzing and looking for opportunities. So you'll keep correct. yourself busy. That's correct. All right. Well, Kevin, thank you very much for coming on the show and sharing your insights. Bill, thanks very much. I enjoyed that. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty dollars or $100,000 and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10 for 1 returns as there is in small cap and micro cap mining stocks. Concomitant 
with that. If you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident and just do your work as best you can. Do your very best, but don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents, but it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on MiningStockEducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.